Well, I recently read a story about a businessman who made a fortune through his financial collection business. This man who had multiple aliases made an extremely comfortable living by hoodwinking some of the poorest of the poor. This person was hated by everyone that knew him and had lots and lots of different reasons why it added to those dynamics. Uh, this individual had a reputation for sort of cooking the books. He would do some funny business when it came to crunching numbers, and he would oftentimes not only insist that those poor souls that found themselves in his clutches pay back their legitimate debts. No, he made sure that they paid every last penny on these fraudulent charges as well. He built his empire, he got rich, he lined his pockets by taking advantage of the poorest of the poor, by abusing his status, by abusing his privilege and his power. And so to call him a pariah would be an understatement. He was hated in his community by pretty much anyone that knew him unless they happened to be in the same field of work that he was in as well. Compounding this guy's social problem was the fact that he was obnoxiously flashy with his money. You see, he not only took advantage of the poor and got every cent that he possibly could, he was very cocky about it, and he was flashy, and therefore the people that lived around him hated him with a strong hatred. Every gaudy status symbol in his life was a reminder of the cruel injustice of it all and how he had lined his pockets by taking advantage of the poorest of the poor. Well, if you're anything like me, you might be wondering, how is it that someone like this can get away with that? How is it that someone can take advantage of the poorest of the poor and build a tremendous amount of wealth in doing so? Well, the reality is this businessman was shrewd and he knew his subjects, they simply didn't have the time or the money to appeal his process for collecting money. And furthermore, the laws on the books were very much shaped by lobbyists in his industry. So this man earned all the hatred he received and the horrible reputation that he had. He was a despicable person. Well, this morning, as we continue in our series, looking at surprising insights from the life of Jesus, we're gonna see what happens when the Son of God crosses paths with this businessman. So I wanna invite you to grab your Bible, turn over to Mark chapter two, if you haven't done so already, and we will begin in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, speaking about Jesus, it says this, he went out again by the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, perhaps better known to you as Matthew, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus said to him, follow me, and Levi rose and followed him. 
So let's look at our scene in our passage this morning. This is happening by the Sea of Galilee in a commercial center called Capernaum. Jesus spent a lot of time here. Jesus would teach here regularly. And therefore, Levi or Matthew, no doubt, had probably, if he hadn't at least heard of the reputation of Jesus, he probably heard him preach as well, perhaps off in the distance in this commercial center of Capernaum. And there Jesus, after teaching the crowds, passes by Levi, our despicable businessman's tax booth, and invites him to follow him. Now, if you grew up in the church, you probably know tax collectors were some of the most despised people during the time of Jesus. If you read through the New Testament, oftentimes tax collectors are lumped in with adulterers, with robbers, and with prostitutes. In fact, there's this phrase, tax collectors and sinners, that shows up again and again and again. These tax collectors were the worst of the worst in their culture. And perhaps you think, well, they were hated because they collected taxes. And well, that's fair enough. Most of us don't have a lot of joy when we pay taxes, but there's a lot more to it than simply that. And I think in order for us to kind of feel the emotional and cultural weight of this and to see how scandalous this actually was to invite a tax collector to be one of your disciples, in order for us to do that, if you'll give me permission, I want to spend just a few minutes exploring what was it that made the tax collectors so hated during the time of Jesus. I hope it'll paint a picture for you, and who knows, by the end of our little brief history summation, you might hate the tax collectors just a little bit more as well. So are you ready to go with me and do a brief history lesson? You can respond to that. You guys ready to do it? All right, let's jump in. It's the first century, it's the time of Jesus, and the Roman Empire rules the day. The Roman Empire, it's important to notice, is massive, it's huge. It stretches from England to India and from Syria to Spain. I mean, it is a huge swath of planet Earth that is under Roman rule. And at that point in time, around the first century, it was something like one in four people lived in the Roman Empire. That means 25% of the human beings that were alive lived under Roman rule. Now, as a point of comparison, only about 4% of the world population in our day is American. 4% in our day, in contrast, one out of every four or 25% of all living souls in the first century were under the rule of the Roman Empire. Also, travel was extremely difficult at this time, so it made it very, very challenging to collect taxes. So here's how they solved this problem by the first century. They had different iterations of this, but at the time of Jesus, here's basically how it worked. The Roman Empire and their officials would uh, take care of making sure the direct taxes were paid to the Roman Empire. That would be something like a property tax or a wealth tax, pretty easy to calculate. That would be paid directly to the Roman Empire. However, as it is in our day, there were all of these other indirect taxes, tolls, and tariffs And instead of the Roman Empire saying, hey, we're going to get in the business of trying to manage all of this, here's what they would do. They would say, let's have a bunch 
of investors come to us and we'll auction off the rights to impose taxes and tariffs for these kinds of things in, let's say, Capernaum. So this was their practice throughout the Roman Empire, which was huge. They would auction off these certain geographical areas and whoever the highest bidder was or when groups would pull their money together, those investment groups would be awarded that contract. And so those people, oftentimes they were of great means, they would frequently hire out kind of something like a subcontractor, and those were the folks that would actually be the boots on the ground collecting those taxes. This is what Matthew or Levi appears to have been. Uh, it's important to point out that these tax collectors were really more toll collectors. So when you read about Matthew, it's probably a better translation to refer to them as toll collectors because they're collecting indirect taxes. But you need to know that these people were despised in part because of how insensitive, how intrusive, and how callous they were with dealing with their subjects. I already mentioned to you, our passage is happening in Capernaum. It's a commercial center right near the Sea of Galilee, and here's what would frequently happen. Folks would be sending goods across the Sea of Galilee. They'd unpack them, unload them in Capernaum, and then they would be encountered by Levi. And Levi would say, I'm gonna guess that you've got this many pounds of this raw material. I'm gonna guess you have this many liters of oil. I'm gonna guess you have this much you get the idea. They would make these approximations, likely, that were very self-serving. They would overestimate what these folks were moving through Capernaum. And if they said, no, 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 I don't want to be paying that much in taxes. I don't have that much. They'd say, oh, you don't? Great. Well, I'm going to be like the world's worst TSA agent. I'm going to make you unpack everything, and I'm going to take my time, and we're going to count all of it, and you're going to lose hours on this trip. Now, that would be annoying enough to deal with, but you have to realize this would happen many times over in one shipment. So these folks eventually just said, it's better to let them take advantage of us and let them overestimate and do all these kind of sideways practices than to still be taken advantage of and lose time. So one reason these toll collectors were hated was because they would open letters, go through things, and if you basically didn't let them take advantage of you, they would make your life hell on earth. Another thing that's important to know is the toll collectors during the time of Jesus regularly took way more money than Rome required. They would make all sorts of fees up. They would take advantage of people's naivete. And honestly, Rome did not care. As long as Rome got their fair share and what they expected to get from that contract, they couldn't care less how much more these toll collectors squeeze out of their subjects. Making matters worse, oftentimes those that were taken advantage of, perhaps they might want to appeal it. Well, again, keep in mind, it takes time and money to appeal something. And furthermore, the Roman Empire was so vast, so large, you might be a two or three days travel from even being near a place where you could appeal it. And so you can begin to see why these toll collectors were so despised. They abused their power, they abused their authority, and in their greed, they took advantage of the poorest of the poor in a population that was already very much overtaxed. So in our passage, when you hear 
that Jesus says, hey, I'm gonna ask one of these guys to be my disciple and not just give him some entry-level position tucked away where I'm not gonna be hassled for it. No, Jesus says, you wanna be one of the 12? You wanna be the face of the company? Come on, Levi, love to have you. You can start to see how scandalous and how controversial that would have been. Picking up in verses 15 and 16, now the scene is no longer at this tax booth near uh, the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. Now we are in Levi or Matthew's home where he's throwing a party. Jesus and his disciples are there. We pick up in verse 15. It says this, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were, what's the word say? Shout it out. There were what? Many who followed him. The first thing I want us to notice this morning is simply this. Morally obnoxious people, like these tax collectors and sinners, they were actually drawn to Jesus. Think about that for a moment, if you would. The worst of the worst were attracted to the most righteous and most holy man that ever lived. The worst of the worst, those that were pushed out of society, so hated for their greed and debauchery, those kinds of people were attracted to the perfect, blameless Lord, the Son of God. Now, in order for this to be the case, I'm sure Jesus did not come across to them as some nitpicky, overly pious fault finder. I'm sure Jesus didn't come across as some unrelatable Ned Flanders type. No, I have to think that Jesus found ways to relate to them and therefore, in his love and treating them with dignity and respect, they were drawn to him. But it's actually even more radical than that. You see, the worst of the worst weren't just drawn to the perfect, sinless son of God. No, Jesus himself actually proactively initiated relationships with these kinds of people. See, Jesus wasn't just open to a relationship with them or sharing a meal with them if they insisted. No, Jesus himself oftentimes is the one initiating that meal and that table fellowship. In the Gospel of Luke, we read about a chief tax collector. It seems he would have been a step up from Levi, a step up from Matthew, by the name of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a short tax collector, no doubt hated. This takes place around the area of Jericho, another commercial center. That's why there's toll collectors there. And Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is going to be coming through that way. And so Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. And if you grew up in the church, you might know he climbed up in a sycamore tree to see Jesus. And that's really the passage I wanna look at for just a few moments here as we look at this encounter. Luke chapter 19, verses four through six, Zacchaeus ran on ahead. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to that place, 
he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Recently read a blog that said Jesus was not a friend of sinners. It said Jesus was not a friend of tax collectors. And in this blog, it said Jesus didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors. No, tax collectors and sinners ate with Jesus. But in this passage in Luke, Zacchaeus doesn't invite Jesus over. He doesn't ask to be a disciple. Sure, he's in proximity to Jesus. He has interest in Jesus. We get that. But Jesus invites himself over. Jesus takes ownership and initiates that conversation, that meal, that interaction with this morally obnoxious individual. In our passage, Matthew, Levi, he's sitting at the tax booth. He doesn't ask to be a follower of Jesus, no. What does it say? Verse 14, when Jesus gets to the tax booth, Jesus says, follow me, and he rose and followed him. The bottom line is this. Jesus not only welcomed morally obnoxious people, he proactively went after them. He initiated meals and coffee. He remembered their birthdays. He went out of their way to foster a relationship with them. And if we're followers of Christ, then I believe we should probably be doing that as well. Verse 16, back in our passage in Mark chapter two, it says this, speaking of the most pious people, most religiously devout people of that culture, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This morning, I want you to notice that although Jesus did spend time with obnoxious sinners, I want you to catch this, he did not participate in their sin. Have you ever seen one of those couples where maybe the woman is very beautiful, very graceful, her hair is really done well, very well dressed, and then you see the guy she's with and it's not quite the same thing. He's disheveled, he's a little overweight, he's not taking care of himself. I mean, am I the only one who's noticed couples with an attractiveness gap? You've noticed it. Don't lie in church. There are those couples that have an attractiveness gap where the woman is beautiful and the guy, or it's the other way around. The guy's very handsome. He's in great shape, very well put together, and the girl's average. Quick side story. Years ago, my wife uh, was on a date with some guy at the movies, and um, she was at this movie theater, and a coworker happened to go to the same movie. And you can't really talk during a movie, especially if you're not seated near one another. So she saw Nikki and this nerdy looking guy with glasses from a distance. And so the next day at work, 
that coworker that saw Nikki told another coworker who told Nikki, hey, I heard you were at the movies last night with this really nerdy looking guy in glasses. There was an attractiveness gap there, and I probably don't have to tell you, I'm the nerdy guy <laughs> that at the time was wearing glasses. We've all noticed this. There are couples where there's an attractiveness gap. Well, that's not what the Pharisees are seeing. They're not seeing an attractiveness gap, but what they are seeing is a holiness gap. There is a huge distance between the lifestyle of Jesus and the tax collectors and the sinners. There's a holiness gap there. I mean, think about it for a moment. If Jesus lived his life just like these tax collectors and just like these sinners, the Pharisees would never ask the question, why is it that your rabbi eats with these kinds of people? They would say, of course he does. They're all terrible human beings, but that's not what they ask. They ask, why is it that your rabbi, your teacher, this faithful follower of the Jewish law, why does he eat with the worst of the worst? We'll answer that question in just a moment, but again, I wanna ask you, are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, are we following his example here? Are you investing time in those that are far from God, that are morally obnoxious, the tax collectors and sinners of our day? Are you spending time with them but also not participating in their sin. Because you see, that is what we are called to. We are called to invest time in those that need the gospel the most, but not to participate in their sin. Now, just to be totally honest with you this morning, I just wanna acknowledge that is way easier said than done. It's difficult to do that. It's pretty easy to spend time with those that are far from God and join with them in their sin. It's also easy to just retreat from the world and all those relationships altogether and therefore not deal with any navigating of sin or temptation. But it takes a lot of wisdom and it takes a lot of knowledge of oneself to follow Jesus's example and spend time with those that are far from God and yet not join with them in their sin, and yet that, I believe, is what we are called to if we're gonna be on mission the way Christ was on mission. In the book of Romans, we have a warning along these lines. It comes from the 13th chapter, and it says this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We are not to be making provisions for our flesh. Whatever my sinful tendencies tend to be, I shouldn't be making it easier to sin. I should know what my temptations are and be wise about removing those temptations as much as humanly possible. Along the same lines, we see in the book of 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it says this, don't be deceived, bad company, ruins good morals. And that's certainly true, isn't it? If you spend enough time with the wrong mix of people, particularly if their vices and sins are similar to your temptations, oftentimes it's not too long before we start participating in their sin. 
But lest we conclude the appropriate response to that is to withdraw and live somehow these monastic lives where we never interact with the people that need to hear the gospel most, let's look at a final passage giving counsel on how to navigate this. It comes from the book of Galatians, and it says this, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual or you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be on mission with seeking and saving the lost. And I believe we are called to follow Christ's example of investing in those that are far from God, but we should not join them in their sin. Quick practical tip on that. Whatever your vices and temptations tend to be, maybe try and reach a group of sinners that have different temptations and different vices. Think of certain individuals that are far from God whose sins honestly don't have that much of an appeal to you and maybe invest in those relationships. And who knows, if you can't think of any group of people at all like that, then take the counsel of Galatians 6.1 and grow up in the spirit. Make it a priority to grow in holiness and righteousness because as Rex says, oftentimes the more potent and powerful we are spiritually, the closer proximity we can have with those that are far from God. Back in our text, picking up in verse 17, we see Jesus answer this question posed by the Pharisees. They ask, why does Jesus eat with the worst of the worst? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I want you to notice in this passage that Jesus saw lost causes the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the adulterers, the thugs, the drug dealers, the criminals, he saw the lost causes actually as those who possessed the greatest promise. Now to be clear here, when Jesus says, I'll tell you why I'm eating with these people, it's because it's the sick that need a physician, he is not saying that there are certain men and women that are spiritually well in and of themselves that don't need my grace. And then over here, there's another swath of humanity that is spiritually sick, and they really need me, and those are the ones I came for. He's not saying that. If you need a passage in the New Testament that makes it clear that we're all sinful, that you can't wiggle out from under, I would point you to the book of Romans. Listen to how all-encompassing these verses are. Romans chapter three, verses 11 through 12. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So when Jesus says, I've come because it's the sick that need a physician, it's the sinners that need me. He's not saying, but there's another group of people, the righteous, 
and those that are spiritually well in and of themselves and they don't need me. No, he's saying it's not a division between those who are spiritually well and doing fine on their own and those that are spiritually sick and need him. That's not the case. He is rather saying there are those that are spiritually sick that don't know they are, and there are those that are spiritually sick that are aware of their need. And that really brings us to our surprising insight for this morning. The reality is, I think we get this wrong a lot. I certainly get it wrong a lot. Oftentimes, the people we think are most likely to respond to the gospel are actually the least likely. They've got mild symptoms. They're able to tell themselves they're not sick. On the flip side, oftentimes those that we think are lost causes that have no hope, no prayer, no shot, oftentimes those are the most likely to respond to God's grace and the message of the gospel. This is surprising, but it shows up again and again in the New Testament. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees Speaking of the Pharisees, those pious people of his day, he says this in Matthew 21, 31. He says, truly, I say to you, religious types, tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom before you. See, the reality is Jesus could see what we oftentimes fail to see. When the Pharisees looked at those tax collectors and those sinners, and when we look at those kinds of people in our society today, oftentimes our assumptions are completely wrong. When the Pharisees looked at the tax collectors and sinners, they said to themselves, their hearts are so hardened by sin, they're so recalcitrant, their conscience is seared, they don't have a shot. On the other hand, Jesus sees oftentimes those are the very ones that know the weight of their guilt every waking moment of the day, and they're looking for a release. When the Pharisees looked at the tax collectors and sinners and thought to themselves, man, they cherish their sin so much in their heart, they so identify with it. They've centered their lives around it. They're never gonna give that up. They're never gonna give up that part of their sexuality or this substance abuse or this greed or this materialism or this prejudiced approach to life. Whatever it may be, when the Pharisees looked at the tax collectors and sinners and said that to themselves, Jesus oftentimes would say, I believe in his heart of hearts, something to this effect. Yeah, they're pretty messed up aren't they? But those living a life of debauchery oftentimes are the ones that are most aware of their enslavement to sin. They're oftentimes aware of the fact that their life is not being run by them, but by their vices, and they're looking for a rescue. See, we get it all wrong. We're like the Pharisees so often. We look at those and think, 
There's no shot for them. They're so far from God. They're so dead in their sin. Look at the people they surround themselves with. Junkies, losers, thugs, ne'er-do-wells. There's no chance for these kinds of people. Oftentimes, the reality that Jesus would understand, I'm sure, is this. No, they weren't choosing to surround themselves with those types. They were relegated to them. They burned so many bridges with mom and dad and with friends and with healthy relationships that that's all that was left. A pitiful excuse for companionship. And so when Jesus looked at these tax collectors and sinners, he didn't say to himself, oh, I'm barking up the wrong tree. Why am I eating with them? Why am I fostering a relationship with them? No, he knew very well these oftentimes are the perfect candidates for discipleship. They are the best prospects for life in the kingdom because Jesus knew full well that the wicked heart was often the most fertile ground for the gospel. And so what does he do in our passage? He calls them. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to faith. He calls them to a life of discipleship and obedience. But above all else, he calls them to himself. And if you're here today, and if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I wanted to simply ask you, in all humility, does the pattern of your life mirror the pattern of Christ's life? Are you someone who's proactively investing in relationships with those that are morally obnoxious? Do you spend your time and energy on them and find ways to relate to them and be winsome without joining with them in their sin? Do you realize that oftentimes the people that we have this knee-jerk reaction to that we think are lost causes are oftentimes the best bet when it comes to responding to the gospel? Do you get that? Do we understand that? And I have to think that there are those that are here today online or in this room at Latham right now that would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. Or maybe you would say, you once were, but I've wandered too far from the shore. I've gotten too far away, I've done too much dirt, I've been too wicked to be forgiven by God, used by God, redeemed. If that's you, I just want you to think in your minds, would you say you're spiritually sick? I believe you would in your heart of hearts, that part of yourself you cannot lie to. Are you spiritually sick? Are you a sinner? Because if you are, this is what Jesus himself said in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you're spiritually sick, if you're a sinner, then by the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, he came for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Commands are valuable, 
abstract ideas have their place, but there's just something about watching the Lord interact with people. God, would you help us that are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to follow his example, to proactively go after morally obnoxious people, to learn how to relate to them and build inroads without becoming complicit in their sin? Would you teach us to not trust our knee-jerk instinct that the worst sinners in our minds have the worst shot and rather flip that and help us see that those that appear to be lost causes are often the best prospects for discipleship. God, for the men and women that are here today that would say, I am a sinner, I am sick, and they've not yet turned to you, help them know that that's the whole reason you came, because you love them and you died for them and they can be reconciled to you, forgiven, restored, and made new through the power of your son's blood. It's in his name we pray, amen.